Strategization is an example of pretend thinking, and of course, what better than a pretend word to be a label for pretend thinking? What's being said is that we want to do something, and then what's happening is it's being put in a context as if it's a strategic response to our particular circumstance. It was always less important to balance the budget than it is now. Absolute nonsense. Uh, and it just shows how cheap the words are that our public figures use. Why shouldn't we discuss whether we have a universal basic income on the merits of what its costs and benefits are rather than here's a new situation, I'm being very strategic, we need a new strategic response. Welcome to Paying Attention with me, Nicholas Gruen, and my friend Peyton Bowman. I have my trusty uh, cup of green tea, and uh, Peyton will introduce the topic very, uh, very briefly, and then we'll get on with it. So today we're going to talk about pretend thinking. So pretend thinking is something you've been writing and thinking a lot about, uh, Nicholas. It, it sounds kind of fun. I don't know. I mean, you're not really doing the hard work of thinking. You just, it's like, pretending yeah, no, well, I'm claiming. Else. That's right. I'm, of course, I'm claiming to be the non-pretend thinker who's exposing <laughs> pretend thinking. But I thought what I'd do is I'd start uh, I, I, I began on this crusade a long time ago when I wouldn't have been so bold as to talk about pretend thinking, but uh, I started coining expressions. And the first expression was strategization. Now, what the hell is strategization? Strategization is a kind of pretend thinking, right? Is yeah. So strategization is an example of pretend thinking. And of course, what better than a pretend word to be a label for pretend thinking? Yeah. Uh, and I'll read you a piece of strategization. And of course, as you know, I do a lot of my work with governments and with government reports and so on. And here is a sentence or a paragraph from a very serious, it was a very major report. It was into competition in, I think it was into competition policy in Australia. Anyway, this is what it says. Services will continue to make a growing contribution to economic activity in Australia. It is therefore important to remove unnecessary restrictions on service provision, particularly barriers to entry and expansion that impede competition. Now, um, I could say to you, well, what's the word that is the giveaway that this is strategization? But then you know all this stuff, so it would all be a bit... Bit, um, yeah. a bit pretend, a bit pretend thinking of, of its own. <laughs> but the word there is therefore. So I'll read it again. Services will continue to make a growing contribution to Australian economic activity in Australia. It is therefore important to remove unnecessary restrictions on service provision. Slow down, slow motion. Let's go back. It is therefore important to remove unnecessary restrictions on service provision. Stop. Ah, interesting. So there might be times when it wouldn't be in, worth doing, removing unnecessary restrictions. Yeah. What's being said is that we want to do something and then what's happening is it's being put in a context as if it's a strategic response to our particular circumstances. And that is, and it isn't. It's, it's, it's what's a, the claim that's being made is less strategic and for that reason, more important or more potentially important, because there are lots of unnecessary restrictions. We should 
remove any unnecessary restrictions that we can find, whether or not services will continue to make a growing contribution to economic activity. Mm. And that's a nice little example of something. But my my argument is really that this happens all over the place, that mm. if you pay attention to the way things are said, I mean, another one is where they say it's never been more important to do something. And usually all you have to do to expose the idiocy of that is to just change the words around and say, yeah. it was always less important to do <laughs> this. You know, yeah. it was always less important to balance the budget now. Uh, sorry, it was always less important to balance the budget than it is now. Yeah. Pig's ass, you know, absolute nonsense. <laughs> so, so our language is hugely degraded in this way. And I think it's quite important. Uh, and, and, and so, that leads to questions like, okay, is it, you know, is it just, uh, is it just a language thing or, you know, is this doing us more harm than that? And those are some of the things that I've been, those are some of the things that I've been writing about and also realising that this problem turns up in lots of other guises and I've made up other names for those situations. Yeah, but I think that that's, uh, you know, this this particular example of it's, it's never been more important. Uh, you you can hear this all the time, and people use this to justify any new uh, kind of um, uh, like new endeavor or new uh, program. And uh, uh, it's interesting to have that kind of that that ability to to look out for this sort of false thinking, this pretend thinking with with this yeah, kind of yeah 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 yeah. Uh, and it just shows how cheap the words are that yeah. our public figures use. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's really something. It's really something. These issues are just everywhere. I know that you've talked a little bit about how uh, universal basic income um, falls into this category to some degree, or at least yep. the discussion around it falls into exactly. the category of strategization. Yep. Um, what do you mean by that exactly? So, so there, so if you're thinking about UBI or universal basic income, lots of people think it's a good idea. Uh, it was proposed by Milton Friedman, famous right-wing economist in the 1950s, and basically it involves making a uh, a unit income payment, a per month payment. Let's say two thousand American dollars a a month, uh, or a thousand American dollars a week, uh, a fortnight, to uh, every person in in America, uh, and then as they earn money we tax that back. And so instead of having sort of zero and uh, paying everybody nothing and then taxing their income as well as paying people on welfare, uh, you you have this much, th this system is much more general um, and it's much less bureaucratic because everybody just gets the payment, they get this minimum payment and so on. And it's an interesting question. Yeah. And... Um, and the way it used to be discussed is largely uh, people would say, well, the, 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 there are costs of this and there are benefits. And I can take mm -hmm. you through roughly what the costs and the benefits are. The uh, benefits of it are, I've just mentioned, it's much less bureaucratic. It's much less moralistic. Uh, and the costs, the problem is that it's much more expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, so everyone gets this 
chunky payment and then the progressivity of the tax and payment system, the, the extent to which we take from the wealthy and we give to the poor is it sort of happens after that first $25,000, $30,000 a year per person. Mm. And so you're paying a lot of money out at the bottom and that means that the tax rate on the money you earn goes up and that's got some bad uh, so so you know there's there's good and bad about it and it's worth having the discussion but what's happened with with what's happened with this it's never Sorry, been more it's never been more important than now it's never been more important that's yeah. a, nicely put it's actually a good you know ding let's look around for us for something fishy here <laughs> yeah and so what's happened is that we've said that various people say that a, a, a universal basic income is both inevitable and highly desirable in the age where the robots get out all our yeah. jobs. Now, we don't haven't seen a lot of evidence that the robots are going to get all our jobs. Uh, there have been lots of times in history when robots have got lots of jobs and human beings have got even more. That was the case through the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, and it might, it's possible in the future that uh, we lose jobs. Uh, I'm not too sure. But, um, but, but why shouldn't we discuss whether we have a universal basic income on the merits of what its costs and benefits are rather than here's a new situation, I'm being very strategic, we need a new strategic response. Uh, maybe we do, maybe we don't. But just saying it's a big new development, there, therefore we need to do a big new different thing is hasty and it's kind of thinking by arranging icons around on a screen rather than thinking through the, the thing on its merits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, it's interesting how... Being able to put something in as a kind of response to a certain political trend can make you seem like you're you're even more thoughtful about it, or you're more yeah uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. More exactly sort of tapped in exactly. about it. But uh, you know, you've also talked a little bit, you know, about how we can create or how whole fields are created um, around pretend thinking. I mean, is this yeah? Uh, so so another example is that. In the OECD, we have this new agenda, and the new agenda is called, of the OECD is an international sort of economic talk shop, I suppose that's one thing you call it. And so they have this thing called inclusive growth, and there's a whole, there's reports on inclusive growth. And as I was reading these things, I was thinking, hmm, this is all a bit funny because inclusive growth, uh, isn't that a little bit like the way economists used to talk about inequality and equity? and the distribution of the national income who you know how much the poor get how much the rich get and so on now you can call it inclusive growth and if you call it inclusive growth then you create this big fluffy new discipline in a sense you yeah. certainly create a new discourse in which um economists can talk about environmental uh, you know uh, having having economic growth that's kind of got social benefits and environmental benefits and all this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, I don't want to dismiss all this. I don't want to say, well, maybe we shouldn't 
that this is all bankrupt. But, you know, there's lots of um, another sign of strategization is lots of diagrams and charts yeah. to illustrate ideas. And in fact, in the in the blog post that I wrote about that, I showed some absolutely some diagrams that kind of looked good when you looked at them and then you actually pay attention to them and they they don't make any sense. Um, so so what might have been a better approach was to say, well, quite a lot of this work about the equity with which the national product is distributed, that is how much of the nation's income this group get, how much of the nation's inc income that group gets, that could be... Uh, you know, that's that work is 100 years old in economics and then we could sort of build, slowly build or, or build from what we know. But instead, it just sounds, it's so much groovier, <laughs> so much more strategic. Uh, it's never been more important to have this new discipline-ish thing, which is, and, and lots of people come and they're not really, it gives them a new language to talk. They're not actually researchers in the area, they're kind of government figures, they're, they're bureaucrats, they're politicians, and it creates a very pleasing language with which everyone can speak as if they're addressing the problems of the moment. And um, that's roughly what's happening. They're speaking as if they're addressing the problems of the moment. They're actually not getting into the getting into the nitty gritty of it. And um, And so I think this is you know, it's a big deal and maybe we'll talk, I, I'd quite like to do another one of these sessions specifically on the how this happens within companies because I think yeah. the whole idea of strategy being the kind of, that's what the serious folks do. Yeah. Um, we go away on away days and we think of all these strategic things like what our values are and what our mission is and so on. And again, uh, the one of the, characteristic things a lot I think a lot of people relate to this is that you get back on Monday morning and everything's exactly the same as it was <laughs> yeah. on Friday before you went on the retreat but everyone has had this experience of somehow feeling like they've discussed all these things and actually nothing nothing much at all has happened so um uh, so, so so you know that's a so, so that's again another example of pretend thinking and it's pretty important because you you go through these whole processes where people put a lot of effort into trying to rethink things and and speak about things and it turns out it's a kind of counterfeit thinking yeah i mean it's almost like people have this this kind of shiny idea that they 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 want to take and they want to promote and then they're looking for some some I mean, you talked a little bit about the relationship between means and ends, but it's like you're looking for something to hook this onto yep. that you feel um, that may or may not be be the best. It might not may or may not be the best solution to. And then you you talk up this this end this uh, this um, in by saying you know it's never been more important that we we solve this particular problem and we have yeah. this great solution for it. Yeah, but, yeah, but it's uh, it's all kind of this mixed mixed up and matched and like trying to think about how uh, the way in which you organize these ideas doesn't necessarily make sense. Exactly, and so I mean, I've I've, I've uh, one of the quotes I've used in some of the writing that I'm doing on this at the moment is from Vera Britton, 
and mm. she uh, wrote a famous book called the Te- a testament of youth uh, after world war 1 about just a, a devastated generation her generation she knew four men and uh, they were all killed all of her clo- her brother her lover uh, and two other men were killed on uh, on the front in World War One. Anyway, she wrote, uh, there is still, I think, not enough recognition by teachers of the fact that the desire to think, which is fundamentally a moral problem, must be induced before the power is developed. Most people, whether men or women, wish above all else to be comfortable, and thought is a preeminently uncomfortable process. And if you're about to go away on a away day, uh, we very often these away days harbour two very contradictory desires. One is to think new thoughts and to think rigorously, and the other is to make sure that people are reasonably comfortable and that you don't sort of unnecessarily upset anyone. Uh, and one of the worst, ga- you know, one of the worst faux pas at an away day would be in the opening session when you're talking about the mission and how you're going to spend an hour talking about the mission, then the rest of the weekend will be spent deciding how... So we're spending an hour working on the mission and then we'll spend the next day and a half talking about how we achieve that mission. And you say, well, isn't that a bit arbitrary and how do we know what the mission should be if we haven't thought about what the how we would ever achieve it? Mm-hmm. Um, well... Uh, you you could you know you could politely throw that in, but so long as you were prepared to be quickly brushed aside because that was the plan, uh, you would be seen as you know in those immortal words, you're not much of a team player. Uh, so so this is this is again a kind of pretend thinking, and and thinking is kind of hard and it's chancy and it usually you know it often goes wrong, uh, and um, and this is, you know, and and so these things, and and so far I've just talked about uh, strategization, but yeah. there are a whole series of these processes where people um, they affect to discuss this. So strategy is a, a it makes a claim to being a superior layer to all those details. It's a summary layer which gives us a sort of synoptic vision of what, what what the scenery looks like and what we should do and and these other these other forms of fake thinking do something similar um, yeah. so i can i'll take you into one of them which i call well a highly amusing one i think is themes yeah uh, so we organize uh, we organize thing. yeah sorry go on Oh uh, yeah, themes and so we have strategy, strategization, now themes to thematization, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So so it turns out that for marketing reasons, if you're organizing a conference, you sort of want to give it a theme. Yeah. Uh now so occasionally conferences are actually someone says, Hey, why don't we hold a conference on this issue? But most conferences aren't like that. Most conferences are the regular annual conference of a profession or a business or something like that. And but 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 if you say this is our annual conference, as as people did 30 and 40 years ago, this is our annual conference, not you won't sell as many tickets mm-hmm. as if you say this is our annual conference, the theme this year is tackling the future with optimism, or some yeah. totally fucking silly idea like that. And uh, and so for us, and, and then what happens is that you get a kind of, 
the, the, the fakeness of all this is exposed by the fact that the marketing people want a theme. You think about a theme and then you deliberately make the theme as vague as possible so people can actually talk about anything they like or, yeah. or certainly a wide band. And then there are people like me who will just sort of say what they were going to say and just say a few, a couple of things at the beginning to pretend that they're related to the theme. Yeah. Usually the theme is, you know, if it's facing the future with optimism, who can't fit whatever they wanted to say into that. Yeah. Um, so, so it looks sort of harmless, but again, it's anti-thinking. And, and so it's smuggling in the appearance of wisdom to, and 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 it's actually rearranging what happens according to this theme, and the appropriate time for a theme, I think, is at a ball when you say the theme is dress as a pirate, uh, and that's people can understand that that's a bit of fun, and it's not any good if you turn up in a toga, you got the theme wrong, and you that's next year, uh, but we we smuggle this into far more serious things, and I was once reading a. I was reading a OECD report and it and I was just astonished and it said that there were, the problem for business was that systems around the world were fragmented and I thought what the hell are they talking I mean yes of course lots of things are fragmented but what are they talking about and it wasn't at all clear what they were talking about but one of the things they were saying was that you know different countries have different Regulatory systems. <laughs> well, we used to think that that was a bit of a, like, we know it has costs, but we, since world government, we thought what most people think world government, at least prematurely entered into, might be rather a bad yeah. idea, um, then this is the next best thing. But anyway, so I'm reading this thing and I think, I've never seen the OECD say these things before. And then I find that this this report is a, a kind of researchy report. It sort of looks like a, a think piece. It looks like a, a contribution to the thinking of the world. And it follows from the Business and Economic Outlook Conference, an annual conference, where the theme was fragmentation. So bugger me. They decided that the theme was... Um, so they decided that their theme was fragmentation and then they wrote up a report and said, you know, here's this this stuff called fragmentation. And they sort of went through all the different things that were fragmented and what was bad about them. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. So that's not really taking you. It doesn't take you anywhere. Um, and it misrepresents what you've done, which is you've done a word association process, not a piece of thinking. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, those themes make it really easy to to make it sound like at least you have some sort of overarching framework of reference or overarching thought yeah. process. But it, that's, that's right. not really real. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. all pretend. Yeah, exactly. So uh, very interesting. And uh, you know, you had another example from your you know from economics, which I thought was yeah. really interesting because. As everybody knows, uh, economics is all about trade-offs, right? Yeah. So, so I recently had a thing published by INET, which is the Institute for New Economic Thinking, set up. I think I, it was set up by George Soros after the global financial crisis. I'm pretty sure. And in it, 
I and and I realized, and, and one of the reasons we're talking about these words today is that I realized that I had a new word to contribute, and and this I think this really does show how serious this problem is. And the new word is theor- theorization, mm. and so, so not theorizing, but theorization. And in the same way that strategization is the pretense to wise strategy, and mm. it, but is not that. It's a kind of it, it's it's something much fishier than that. Theorization. I think academia, academic publications are absolutely flooded with this. Certainly in my discipline of economics. And so, what happens is that you, you you might have you might you will be familiar, I think, with a term that's become much more popular in the last ten or fifteen years than it was before, which is I you, you say things like speaking as an economist or speaking with my economist's hat on, hmm. and what that is paying, what that's acknowledging, is that an economist thinks is supposed to is inducted into a process of always thinking about things in a particular way. Now, that's fine so long as the way you think about things is not too mechanical. And one of the stories that economists came to tell themselves from the 1930s on, and for reasons I won't go into here, is they a guy called Lionel Robbins produced this definition of economics, which in its own way was a try on. It was a a highly tendentious move in various disciplinary <laughs> maneuverings, but it was extremely attractive and has retained its allure to this day. And I actually I should have the words here. I don't have the precise words, but it says economics is the science. Uh, is a science of scarcity, and it's the the discipline of understanding the uh, use of scarce means to achieve chosen ends, something mm. like that. Now, that sounds terrific. And certainly at the time, economics was developing around the sort of mathematics of pure choice, uh, looking at the question of uh, how do we optimise the choices that a consumer has between all, how does a, a consumer decide to what they consume? How do a million consumers decide what they consume while a million producers decide what they produce and how do we optimize this? Hmm. Out of this came the idea that the, the essence of economics is about trade-offs. Uh, the trade-off of how many apples do I want to buy well, if I want to buy more apples, I can't. I have to buy fewer oranges. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the idea. Now, that's you know, that's kind of in its own domain. That is um, unexceptionable. Yes, of course. You know, there's a common sense to that. The problem is that this common sense then gets totalized, and so economists think that in a pa- that the paradigm of economics is about always framing everything as a trade-off. Mm. Um, and that simply isn't true. So an example I use in the paper is that uh, until the 1980s, it was always regarded in manufacturing that there was a trade-off between quality and cost. And what Toyota, what the Toyota production system showed was that a phenomenally successful way to get costs down if you did it properly 
was to get quality absolutely right first time. Every one of the 90,000 manufacturing operations that went into a car was, if you got it right first time, you lowered costs than if you got some of those things wrong and then you had to you had to detect what was wrong with inspectors and then you had to go back and fix it. And you can see why that might not just lead to lower costs, but that it might lead to a kind of productivity juggernaut as you continually optimise. And whenever you do something, your whole production process figures out how it can get this absolutely right at the minimum cost. And then all these other processes that are interdependent with it are in a much more predictable situation. So that's a situation where this idea of trade-offs was simply wrong Yeah, in that context. Uh, it doesn't prove that the, it's the opposite of that relationship. It proves, again, that you have to think about it on the merits. And then, but, but anyway, when, economy, when, when junior economists go to uni, they learn that economics is about trade-offs. They learn that uh, a policy can target equality or it can target efficiency or maximum output, and there is a trade-off between them. Well, pig's ass is a trade-off between them. There is, in certain senses, at the limit, a trade-off between them. If you redistribute income from the rich to the poor and you try to do it all the way to total equality of income, then you will have a big efficiency loss. But if you make, uh, I mean, one of the things about the Toyota factory was that it was a much fairer factory than the American factories. The amount that the workers were paid well, the amount that the CEO was paid compared to the workers was multiply less than it was in the United States. Uh, so uh, another trade-off that appears in textbooks is that there's a trade-off in health policy between health and cost and the distribution of health resources. Well, in some kind of obvious, in some kind of obvious sense, uh, other things being equal, that is true, uh, but other things are not equal. So if we are trying to deal with COVID, if we do it well, it'll be good for our economy. Hmm. Uh, so these things are highly interdependent. And the only way to understand those interdependencies is to go down to this business, this difficult business that Vera Britton tells us, this difficult business of thinking about them and thinking about them on the merits in context rather than running this overlay of theorization over the top. Yeah. Uh, so in each of these cases, uh, what I, have, I hope we've shown, what I hope I've argued successfully, is that you have this, this senior layer, this strategic layer, this theory layer, mm. all of the prestige goes up there, but, but, but the actual details are not well uh, dealt with by this kind of pretending uh, and and the, pro the the business of thinking our way from the theory to the details is usually difficult. It's often creative and so on, and uh, we don't do a very good job of it. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier how th we could talk for a whole episode about how this kind of uh, separation functions in organizations. And I, I can certainly think of lots of examples of this in companies and so forth. 
Yeah. But, uh, but I do think, yeah, this is really, really interesting. So we have this strategization, this thematization, this theorization. I think you even had some others uh, that you were thinking about, about in the background that maybe we could talk about another yeah. time. Like well, finally, yeah, finally, let's just talk about, uh, yeah. let's call it ideologization. Okay. So our whole society is, you know, absolutely um, – uh, traumatized by this this extent to which on Twitter and elsewhere, mm. the extent to which everything is judged at this upper layer. So someone will say something, and someone will will find out a way to attack to call it racist or or this or that from mm. this upper layer. Uh, and of course, it's not just all you know. I'm not just having a go at the woke folk. Uh, it, it also happens on the other side. Yeah. So we, we're incredibly revved up because, and, and, and so I'd previously said these upper layers have, um, these upper layers are more prestigious, which I think they are. But here with ideologization, they're also the thing that we uh, have an emotional reaction to. They're also the thing that we suddenly start caring a lot about. We don't care about details in particular. They're not exciting enough to talk about. Yeah. They don't en enable us to strike a pose and present the world with the way we think about something. Uh, so so it's a, I think it's a window on a pretty powerful way in which our world is in a, in a pretty sorry state and I would say getting worse by, with every passing day. <laughs> Well, well, maybe we could wrap up with a little bit of, of optimistic uh, ending or optimisticization or something along these lines. Uh, I mean, it, what can we do about this? Is there anything that we can do to address fake or pretend thinking when we, we see it? Um, well, I guess I'm trying to by talking about it, by showing how, uh, by showing how, it could be done differently. So, I mean, for instance, in my uh, essay that I did that, that was published by INET, which I'll bring up, uh, I quote uh, William James, the philosopher William James, and he talks about, uh, and, and of course, we talk, uh, I've mentioned this idea of trade-offs, this idea that everything trades off against everything else, and this alternative, uh, and an alternative way to think about this is to say that all human institutions involve um, a trade-off. They involve a, well, they, they involve a, in context, different people taking on different shared roles. And I give the example, and we've talked about this before, in a queue or a line to get onto a plane or a bus, uh, Everyone in that line has their own interests, which they're trying to promote at the same within a structure which acknowledges others' interest. Mm. Uh, now, uh, that's that's a much more sort of organic story, and it invites us to think about the details and understand what's going on. And then I quote the philosopher William James, which is, and he's expressing a similar idea. He says, "Any social organism, whether large or small," is what it is because each member proceeds to his own duty with a trust that other members will simultaneously do theirs. Mm -hmm. Whenever a desired result is achieved by the cooperation of many independent persons, 
its existence as a fact is a pure consequence of the faith in one another of those immediately concerned. A government, an army, a commercial system, a ship, a college, an athletics team all exist on this condition without which not only is nothing achieved, but nothing is even attempted. So, uh, again, another nice expression from a philosopher is Mary Midgley, where she talks about philosophical plumbing, that we need to try to pay attention to the structure of these ideas and then to assess those things on their merits. Where How will this help us understand the particular thing in front of us? Or are we just pretending? Or, or, or are we pretending, as we might be doing with strategization? Uh, or are we uh, theor- theorizing? Or are we engaging in, well, I'm going to think about this as an economist. We all know how to do that. We just bring out a supply and demand curve and start talking about supply and demand, or we start talking about trade-offs. Is the tool, is the intellectual tool you've chosen fit for the purpose that you're trying to use it for? That's uh, and but but it's but but if we want to think, it's it's hard. It's it's a tricky business of fitting structures of ideas to the situations we find ourselves in on their merits. Well, that sounds good. Well, it's a good note to end on and uh, gives us a lot to think about. So anyway, (laughs) thank you very much, Nicholas. And I will talk to you again soon. Thanks, Peyton.